socks. It's we are in crime and time. There was goop on my drink. It's a um, lime pulp. That's wonderful. I you took know how I feel about pulp. I know. I purposely took the limes off of the <laughs> drinks before we sat down because I know you don't like garnish. <laughs> so what are we drinking? We're that has lime. The classic Cape Cod. The classic Cape Cod. So it's just pretty much super easy recipe. Vodka, cranberry juice, a squeeze of lime. Do you. Like yes. put how much you want in there. And I just realized we probably, given Cape Cod, should have put these in the Waterford tumblers. But we put them in my um, blown glass Mexican tumblers with the blue rim that I literally carried on my lap home from Mexico. I think it's fine. And I love them. I'm They're gonna beautiful. have a drink while we're um discussing. Yeah. Yeah. So this we went to husband and I went to Mexico before we were even married and we bought an iced tea a service of eight in iced tea, margarita, water, beer, sherry, and highball. And a pitcher. <laughs> And brought them all home on our lap. I have some Mexican hand-blown glasses as well, but they're the green rim. Mm -hmm. And then um, some of them are just like a green, they don't have a rim, colored rim. They're just like a green and white. Is that the one that you posted with the mango margarita in it? No, that's a whole different glass. <gasps> Those are so pretty. Yeah. With the speckled color. I found at National Store that's going out of business, um, I found a stemless wine in this same glass and it was they had one last time i was in mexico they still had a crap ton of the blue oh of course they do. They don't have a lot of the green but interesting i have a pitcher in the green but i don't have any of the glass in the green but husband and i tend to bring things home from mexico my my bathroom sink yeah is another one of our finds we're literally driving down the road and he said hey those are copper vessel sinks and so we stopped got out of the car bought some bought sinks. The sinks and like when people are like, what, do you go buy everything, bring everything in the kitchen sink? Like they yes. do, they, you did that. We did. It was a bathroom, bathroom sink. sink but, but, but we have a matching pair, but our bathroom currently only has one sink. So one is getting used and, and all that that comes with being used and the other is not. Yes. So Cape Cod, That's I like it. Place. I love it. I've always loved a yeah. Cape Cod. Nothing wrong with it. I it's good classic i think it's so interesting though that it's a vodka cranberry until you put a lime in it and then it's a cake cod and like it's a rum and coke until you put a lime in it and then it's a cooper libra yeah so lime just fancy shit up it makes it super fancy makes it super fancy so speaking of fancy we've got cape cod are you going first or am i i don't care you want to go first that was me? valley girl not fancy that was not fancy no at all well yeah i can go first if you want so cape cod i went literal and i'm talking about cape cod I don't know much about Cape Cod. Well, it's pretty cool. Um, so I looked at a few things. I looked at um, Cape Cod, Britannic, Britannica.com, the rich history of Cape Cod, CapeCod.com, Cape Cod history, archive.newyorktimes.com, five fun facts about Cape Cod, New England vacation rentals.com, and Wikipedia, as well as watched an adorable documentary on YouTube. So I get YouTube on my Roku TV in my bedroom now. So I like to just sit and watch videos. You're a YouTuber now? I'm a YouTuber now. Well, I guess a YouTube consumer. Yes. Yeah, so it's called Cape Cod Then and Now by Sagamore Films. 
I tried to find what year it was made. It did not say on YouTube. I tried to just look it up and figure out what year it was made. Couldn't do that. I tried to estimate what year it was made based on like the clothing and the hairstyles, but there were these two or three older ladies that spoke and all older ladies dress alike and all their hairstyles are alike. Yeah, even to this day. Yes. And then there were fishermen um, that wore hats and they all dress alike. Then there was men in uniforms and bald men. So I could not figure out what year this thing was made. I'm looking on IMDb and I don't see it on here. No. Oh. Well, so it starts out with this fisherman and his, he's got his red and white cable knit sweater on and his red and white beanie cap and he's sitting in front of a wooden stove and he says, this is a direct quote, one out of every three Americans is living within driving distance of Cape Cod. How and- did... <laughs> Does he not know where does he not know where America is? I listened to this like four times to make sure that's what he said, and that's what he said. Is he just trying to say like because New York's so large and Boston's so large and could be, but that's like Cape Cod's kind of like more people live on the east west coast or the east coast and the west coast. That could be totally. Or what's driving distance to him? It could be like my grandfather that was like five days is driving distance. That's driving distance. Well, I've been on many of those driving distance trips with Mm -hmm. in-laws. We've gone to Minnesota and back the long and scenic route. We've been in New Mexico twice. I've been to LA several times with husband. So yeah, I get that. But so one out of every three Americans living with driving distance of Cape Cod and probably two, if not three out of every three Americans knows the words Cape Cod. I know both of those words. (laughs) They're such distinctive words. Um, they know where it is and and think they like, oh, I'd like to see it. <laughs> he was adorable. He was really cute. So, like, you know, like we just discussed, no idea what he meant by, you know, driving distance, but I would definitely like to see it. So Cape Cod is the baby of our continent. It was only it's only 21,000 years old. Oh, it is a little baby. It is a little baby. So it was formed by the, um, in the last ice age, by the glaciers. So the buzzards apparently describe glaciers in lobes. Because the buzzards bay lobe was on one side. The Cape Cod lobe was underneath. And the South Channel lobe was on the ocean side. So these three glaciers, after living there for years and years and years, um, formed this... It's basically a sandbar that kind of looks like an arm, like curling up and making a muscle about 21,000 years ago. So 10,000 years ago, you could walk from Nantucket and Martha's Vineyards, which are below the southern border of Cape Cod. You could walk all the way up. Um, Now, Nantucket Sound was all dry land because the water was all tied up in the glaciers. And then when they melted 6,000 years ago, it all... The water level rose, and you could see the land. And it had formed these little sandbar things. So it extends 65 miles, or 105 kilometers, into the Atlantic Ocean. It has a breadth of, in some places, it's one mile wide. Oh, wow. That's nothing. That's nothing. And in other places, it's 20 miles wide, which is 1.6 and 32 kilometers. You're like, we have to go all the way across the island for that. We'll be there in a minute. Right. (laughs) So when I was born, my parents were living in Hawaii and that was Sharon, who is my mother. Um, That was her biggest pet peeve about living in Hawaii is she could not get in the car and drive for a hundred miles in a straight line. 
I've been on um, most recently Kauai, and it feels like you're driving 100 miles when you go from one end of the island to the other, and that's not a big island. Mm-hmm. But so, well, this is this peninsula is even smaller. It's one or 20 miles. Um, it's bordered by Cape Cod, which is Cape Cod Bay, which is on the north and the west, and Buzzards Bay, which is on the west, and the vineyards of of Martha, of Martha, <laughs> and the Nantucket Sound are on the south. Um, the Elizabeth Islands are located southwest. The islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket lie to the south. It's basically a big sandbar, like I said. It's um, at the mercy of the sea. Mike Watley, who is one of the guys in uniform, he is from the Cape Cod National Seashore, and he says that it is the island, or the peninsula, is diminishing by three feet per year, but it's not a loss because some of the sand is redistributed to other areas of the Cape. So the landscape is literally changing. So is he saying, though, that it's like in some areas it's diminishing, but others it's growing? Correct. Okay. Yeah. But it's just redistributing the sand. Which makes sense. It's sand. So if you were to look at Cape Cod. Then and now. (laughs) A hundred years ago, it's probably a different, little bit different shape than it is now. Um, The Cape's climate is influenced by its overall proximity to the Atlantic Ocean and the presence of both the Gulf Stream and the Labrador Current. Its climate tends to be moderate and compared with the mainland. It's warmer in the winters and cooler in the summers, which, interesting. that's why you go there. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. The plant life, I would, but it's still cold. Like, that's that's Massachusetts. That's still freaking cold. Yeah. I don't want to live there. And I like, you know, I like. Well, I don't like humidity, so I but I do like a hot summer. Yeah. Um, plant life includes beach grass, heath, and trees such as white cedar, red maple, pitch pine, and beech. I love a beech tree. Um, shorebirds and seabirds such as piking povers ter- and terns are abundant. So there was, prior to European contact, there were native peoples living on the peninsula. Um, they had a whole community that would go to the beaches and fish then they would dry the fish. So that was, they did hunt, but that was their main meat was the fish. Um, and in the summer, they would move to planting areas where families would be assigned individual planting areas and homes by their station in the tribe. So the further up you were, the better plot you got. That kind of still happens in California. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> if you know anything about the system here. <laughs> In the fall, the harvest would start and the crops and the fish would be put in big storage pits. And then the locals, as, you know, Europeans came, the locals started calling those Indian barns. Um, Then they would start the hunting season in the early winter. And they would move to a new location for the hunting season. So they basically had these, like, house shells set up all over the island. And then they would just move the interior and, like, the walls of their house to each location as they went around throughout the year it's my thing i hit my lamp oh (laughs) and my little nemo fish that i have it's a nemo fish whistle from the golden state museum being used as a pull for the lamp that has a pull yeah well my child number one is my nemo she's the egg that made it so whenever i see a nemo i have to have a nemo so take a drink of my thing um it's thought that the viking explorer thor of land um, actually broke his keel on the shores of Cape in 1004. Wow. Right? 
but European explorers didn't come to Cape Cod until 1602. Bartholomew Gosnold came in from Fairmouth, England to investigate the American coast. He was looking for trade opportunities. He first anchored off of what is now Provincetown, and he is the one who named it Cape Cod. Oh, okay. Because his sailors went out and they caught a bunch of cod. All right, but he's like, what can we call this cape? What did you see there? Well, we caught all these cod. <laughs> Let's call it Cape Cod. Very imaginative, that um, Bartholomew. He's, he's yeah. got a big I feel like a lot of the early namers of America were very creative. <laughs> right? They're like, plain view. Well, what do you see when you look around? Well, it's just a view of planes. <laughs> um, when you look out at that field there, what do you see? Well, I see a bunch of spring flowers. That there's Springfield. <laughs> what, do you, what should we call this street lined in, lined in elm trees? Uh, let's call it Elm Street. <laughs> oh my God. That's hysterical. Um, okay, so Cape Cod. Then he turned and moved to Cuddyhunk and the Elizabeth Islands, which he named after, you know, Elizabeth. The Elizabeth. Right, the Elizabeth. So there's also, you know, Virginia. After oh, that's Elizabeth true. And Jamestown after James. So they were also creative with their monarchs as well. I'm naming things after their monarchs. So they left after a few weeks and the, he noticed that the crew was, quote, much fatter and in better health than when we went out of England. Because of the cod? Well, they're getting fresh air, yeah. one, and two, like actual food. You know, yummy food. Yummy food. Um, Samuel de Champlain, the explorer and geographer for the King of France, visited in 1605 and again in 1606. And his encounter was not quite as peaceful. Um, he and the Wampanoag tribe um, encountered each other at the Chatham area and there was a lot of blood spilled on both sides. Uh, it was not so good. They don't like the French. They don't like the French. Um, in 1620, the Pilgrims landed on the site of Provincetown, which is the hooked part of Cape Cod. Before they went on to Plymouth, they got to Provincetown and they were like, um, Sandy, no thank you. And they left. <laughs> like, um, I don't like this. <laughs> so they, they found... Can we just not with all this sand? So they sound like what I was talking about earlier. Um, They're like, can we F out of here? Yeah. So they left. And I'm sure the natives were very glad they left. Because, <laughs> bye, y'all. Over the next 20 years, settlers spread north and south from Plymouth. And the first parts of Cape Cod started to be settled on the bay section near what is present day Sandwich, Bar Barnstable, and Yartmouth. Um, all were incorporated in 1639. Along the old Indian Trail, which is now Route 6. So again, what do you see on that road? There's a bunch of old Indians. Old Indian Trail. What should we name it? The Old Indian Trail. <laughs> um, most of the new campers hunted, farmed, fished, or my picked salt hay, which I've never heard of salt hay, but whatever. I don't know the salt hay. They picked it from the marshes, and they used it to feed their cattle and make their thatched roof houses. Well. So useful. Good it's for useful, them. Yes. The Wampanoag tribe was very helpful to the settlers. They taught them what they knew of the land and how to live off of it. They taught them what was good to eat, how to fish for the cod, what to hunt, what plants were good for food, what plants were good for medicine. They showed them how to strip and process the blubber from the whales that would 
come up. Whaling became a huge industry in the area later. Um, just basically all the things that you needed to know to survive on this little sandbar. Mm-hmm. And the um, Europeans thanked them with disease. So the first homes that were as built... As it goes. As it goes. The first homes that were built by the English settlers on Cape Cod were wigwams out of twigs and bark and hides, corn stalks, grasses, whatever you could find, you did. They basically just copied those of the local Wampanoag tribe. Which makes sense because they've been using them. They work. Yeah, they work. Let's just build that. So um, as was typical, it, this is literally what I wrote, as was typical of much of the, quote, new world, the natives did not have immunity to the diseases and the illnesses that were brought with them from Europeans. I feel like this is a theme whenever we talk about Native Americans. Oh, it's for sure a theme. Um, they died in massive numbers in 1618 prior to Europeans even settling there. They were just on the mainland. They had stopped by for a minute and then left. It spread that quickly. That quickly. Um, Well, they say there's some theory that before the population had dimmed of the mainland area had had gone like been reduced by like 30 percent before contact with Columbus just from birds stopping on the ships yeah coming over that makes sense Uh but anyway so in 1618 a very bad illness came through and historians aren't quite sure what it was but it wiped out nearly all of the people in the coastal areas and then again it came through in the 1630s and by that time the native population was had been decreased by 70 to 90 percent wow yeah just decimated that's unfathomable that's not one percent that's 90. Considering we're living through a global pandemic right now. That's 1%. That's not even 1%. Yeah. It's 1% of those tested. Yeah. So, like, yeah. 90% dead. Boom. Like, picture. Within, so this is from 1611, 1618 to 1630. So 15 years. Picture literally everybody you know. Let's say it's 100 people. And 10 to 20 of them are still alive. Yeah craziness that's crazy yeah um in addition to dropping dead of diseases there was fighting and wars and so a lot of the men were dying in these wars conflict was almost constant it all led up to king philip's war which happened in 1675 and after that war the native americans at least on cape cod were kind of like okay and they either moved less to the west to the mainland or they just said all right, we're farmers now. Yeah, we'll just we'll just do it. Yeah, we give. You've killed ninety percent of us. Okay. Um, the way the communities were often set up was they would have one or two community buildings, and then they would have little independent farms. And these independent farms, they took care of everything they needed. They grew all of their food. They made their fibers. They, they did everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, they. Would still, there were still some, you know, not cash crop, but like barter crops. Um, the Cape was very windy and it wasn't great for farming, but there was some farming. Fishing became most prominent. It was very windy, so they started figuring out how to build windmills to help with the grinding in the grain granaries. Um, they also used water wheels, and I had never heard of this. They used the tide, and that's called a grist mill. I've heard the term grist mill. I Have just you? did not know what it was. I had no idea. So there's obviously windmills or, you know, the water wheel mm-hmm. that turns the thing that you put in the creek and then these grist mills. And apparently most of the grist mills are gone now, but there was a time that you could just look out and all along the beach, there'd be all these little machines 
Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah, because I've heard the term. I just like uh, just associated with okay, it's a type of mill, but I didn't know any details yeah. of it. So it's a tide, which is kind of a cool. tide mill. A tide mill. I'm surprised they didn't name it tide mill, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is a grist? I don't know what that term. Means. I have no idea. Maybe it meant tide. I don't. It know. It must have meant tide. Um, so milling was a main job in the town, and when the when the fishermen and the sailors were not out on their boats, they would be fixing the sails on the windmills. So these are not fixed, like out here, we have fixed blade windmills. Yes, and made these are like metal. Dutch style. With these the, are Dutch style yeah. with the fabric, yeah. They're pr really adorable, they though. They are, and they're st they still dot the cape, apparently, everywhere. Um, during the Revolution, it was kind of a hard time for the cape because most of the coastline around the area was controlled by the British, and they were actually headquartered in Provincetown on the cape. Oh, wow, so they were basically surrounded they were like they were surrounded refugees yes kind of you couldn't take your boat out to do anything because you would be captured wow yeah that must Scary. have been really like i mean i'm sure they were probably all tories just yeah. because they even if they weren't they said they were yeah so they wouldn't die you would have had to yeah so because of this they really became self-sufficient they didn't um they couldn't get to the mainland to get anything so they kind of developed their own thing um logging became a really huge industry typical to what was happening in most of the continent the people from england and europe got there and be like shit there's wood <laughs> because there wasn't any left yeah there and so they just it's everywhere everywhere yeah. everything's made of wood my house is made of wood my furniture's made of wood i got plates made of wood oh you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna burn wood to keep warm yeah. So pretty soon, there's no more wood. Because <gasps> they didn't have an abundant supply. No. It does not renew that quickly. By the time the Boston Sandwich Glass Company was formed in the early 1800s, Cape Cod was clear cut. It was just... <gasps> oh, that's sad. Um, yeah. Prior to World War II, you could see nearly all the way across the Cape. During World War II, some of the trees started to come back and some of the forest started to come back. So it is forested again now. Well, I know with like our conservation measure, measures, like they've probably reforested a lot yes. of the areas. But but if we look at that time, early 1800s to the 1940s. Yeah. To get it back to where there's a forest there. That's nearly 120 years. <laughs> They, they made these European-style homes with the New World. They wanted them to look their own, to look like they wanted them to look. And now that's how the ranch-style house got built. Kind of. So <laughs> this is, it has a very steep roof. It's called a salt box or a Cape Cod cottage. Um, it's still very popular there. It's designed to accommodate growing families. So a young couple gets married, and they build a little one or two room half cape. It's kind of like a lopsided one and a half story with a door on one side. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So it had a door on one side and then two windows on the other side. And it had a single chimney that was on the wall, typically behind the door. And then as the family grew, they would build an addition here or an addition there or an extra thing here. And the door was large enough for a single window in the door. And then they would turn it into a cod three-quarters house or a cod two-window house and, but so it was like they called it warts because they would have this house with all these little extras on it it's kind of like your husband did with the your previous house yes my husband and his extras 
But yeah, those warts are on the top, though. Yeah, <laughs> not just... all of them. I mean, the little library bathroom. Oh, and... yeah, that's true. That's true. And the, the garage. The garage turned master. Turned master toy room that we discussed in our previous podcast. Um, so fishing and water activities, activities, obviously huge. You're a peninsula surrounded by water. The fishermen had to go out prior. So when they first started, they would go out and they would like fill up their holds and come back. Well, then, you know, it started getting fewer in between. But they would come back and they would spread the fish out all on these. They called them flakes and they would leave them in the sun to dry. And then they would take all the dried fish and they would put it back in the ship and they would go sail somewhere else and sell that and get something else. And they'd go sail somewhere else and fill that, sell that and fill their boat with something else and this is what they did and they would make a crap ton of money doing this so then when they were tired they would come back and they would have a sketch of a house that they had seen or a style of house that they had seen on their travels all around the world and they would go to the builders the carpenters on the cape which built the boats the houses whatever you need you build it and they would be like make me a house like that and so that's how we got these massive old houses on Cape Cod. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, sometimes the sea captains would take their families along on these journeys. And you've got your family. And so mom takes care of the kids and she teaches them all how to read. And then the sons go up and they work with the crew and learn how to be a sailor. And the daughters stay down and they learn how to sew and cook and all the things that you need to know to be a girl. But sometimes dad would die. Oh. <laughs> And so in that case, a lot of times the widows would then captain the boat. But they still had a crew, right? Like they still had a crew. They didn't have to do everything for themselves, but they were the person in charge then. Wow. Yeah. So this one particular woman, um, Hannah Rebecca Burgess, she went on several voyages with her husband, William, and he passed away during one of the voyages. And her goal, she wanted to get him back to Sandwich to bury him in the Sagamore Cemetery. So they put him in a pickle barrel filled with rum. <laughs> they pickled him in rum. And they took him home and buried him in the Sagamore Is Cemetery. that an option today? I don't think so. If I can be pickled, can you please pickle me in a margarita? Right? Well, what's his name? Drowned in a vat of wine. That's true. So, you know, it's a possibility. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll choose option three. Pickle me in a margarita. <laughs> I want to be put in a canvas bag with a seed and grow a tree out of me i don't want that no. i do i'm excited about that but it's not gonna happen because i live in california well it doesn't have to happen the world here. of regulation it can happen somewhere else yeah so anyway um lobster is also a big industry they had a interview with robert power senior who was a lobster man that started working in the 1940s and he was telling the stories about how when he started they had to use wooden pots and they would have to carry their wooden pots down to the water and they'd be super heavy because they had to put bricks in them to make them sink. You know, because they're wood. Yes, because wood doesn't sink. And nowadays they're made of wire and they're so much lighter and they have winches and the people have it easy now. And he, he had to work so hard when he was first starting out. And he was one of the ones that was bald, so I couldn't tell. What had to walk uphill was. both ways. Right? He did mention that his grandson has a student or had a student permit and he had 25 pots out and he had decided at the time of the filming that he didn't want to go to college he just wanted to be a lobster man 
I, I don't know if that's good or not. I maybe either. maybe that's a good decision. Yes, but he he did say um, Robert said that the lobsters were getting fewer and fewer, and it was harder to make a living. Yeah. So shipbuilding, another industry that started in Cape Cod, the carpenters just built whatever you needed. You need house, we'll do house. You need ship, we'll build a ship. You need windmill, we got a windmill. Um, the a typical Cape Cod house that we talked about, bow roof. It might have a slightly curved bottom of a bottom of the roof line that reminisce is reminiscent of a boat. Yep. Um, everything kind of looked like a boat. Later on, I'm going to talk about wagons and the pictures of the wagons. Are boats like with boats. wheels? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So obviously they're very well built because if you're building something that has to float on the ocean and withstand the sea, you're going to be um, well built. So the older houses also had a profusion of small, irregularly shaped, located windows in the gable ends. And Henry David Thoreau, which I'll talk about more later, wrote of one of these houses that it looked as it if each of its variants occupants had punched a hole where his necessities had required it. Okay. I want a window here. I'm going to punch a hole here. So the shipbuilders started with small fishing schooners, and then they eventually graduated to larger ships. The Cheverick Shipyard, which was located in Dennis on the Cape, built huge ships. But then in order to get their ships out, they would float them down this creek and it wasn't big enough for them to um, turn it. So most of the time you would either launch a ship straight out with its front end facing out Mm -hmm. or you would push it out on its side. They had to push it out with its back end coming out (laughs) because, like a baby, (laughs) because the, the creek was too small for it to turn around. So they would get them into the Cape and they would sail over to Boston where they would have, they'd be outfitted and their mast stacked. So I have no idea what mast stacked you means. You gotta stack the mast. But that's what it said. Maybe that means like the sail is. Could like, be. Well, wouldn't they need that though to sail over to Boston? I think so. I don't know what that means. Neither. So Cape Cod was a very feared stretch of Atlantic coastline. It was very um, rocky and treacherous. It had shoals and nor'easter winds. The nor'easters coming tonight. So a lot of ships were obviously lost near the Cape. Um, The documentary that I watched showed two very strange pictures. Um, And one was of a ship that was really, really listing to the side. And it had a line from the top of its mast to the shore. And being attached to this line was obviously the outline of a body. What? It was just limp hanging there. Weird. Yes. And then this one was the weirder. And I tried to find a copy of this picture. What I may end up doing is looking up the documentary on my phone or my iPad and taking a screenshot of it because mm-hmm. I want to put this on our social medias. Um, it's these five men and they're dressed in these white sailor uniforms, which I found out later is from the National Service. I'll talk about it in a minute. That was formed in Cape Cod. So they're in these white sailor uniforms i can't get the year um i kind of estimated that it had to be early to mid 1800s or late 1800s based on the mustaches because they were the big bushy mustaches Uh that looked like the brooms the push brooms um but i couldn't tell anything from their clothing and they're standing there's five of them they're all looking at the camera and smiling and they're holding a stiff body (gasps) like obviously stiff 
body. You cannot see his face, but his arms are like this, straight. Can you see that? They're straight out um, from his body, like he was catching himself from falling. Oh, creepy. His legs were completely straight, and one man on the end has one hand on one ankle and is looking at the camera. Well, obviously that body has to be stiff or it's going to buckle and fall. And they're yeah, just like holding it. Rigor mortis. So weird. That's I, so creepy. I want to know the story behind that picture. Um, so anyway, because of these shipwrecks, lighthouses came early. Just before the revolution, they put lighthouses out. Um, there were three lighthouses. The Highland Light had a steady beam, one steady beam. The Chatham Station had two steady lights. And that was because one was over on one side and one was over on the other side. Because the cape looks like an arm that's bent at the elbow yes. making a muscle. So and they were in like the elbow pit. No, there was one on the tip and one um, maybe on the elbow pit. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, it's there's two there and they decide they need a third. And they can't figure out what they're going to do. And so they built the three sisters. And it had three lights. And that was in the middle. So there was one, three, two. And then Henry David Thoreau, who stuck his nose in a lot of Cape Cod business, apparently. He was one of those guys. <laughs> he was one of those guys. He said, why do you have three lights when one would be just fine? And they were like, oh, no, it's just the way it's always been done. So by that time, the technology had advanced enough that they could have a blinking light. Oh. But it wasn't when they first started. Yeah. So that was the solution, which makes total sense to me. Yes. I don't know why Thoreau needed to stick his nose in it. But so they changed them out, and then you had one steady light. In the middle, there was three flashing lights. On the end, there was two flashing lights. So blink, 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 blink. Good for him. You, right. You could tell way to, Way to blaze a trail. <laughs> so even though there's the lighthouses, you still had shipwrecks. Oh, this is the service that those guys worked for. So they had to figure out how to deal with the shipwrecked soldiers. So first thing they did was they built these little bitty huts all over the beach. And they put firewood and blankets and things that you could use to stay warm. And they're just like, here, this is where you live now, the beach? Yeah. <laughs> here, here is, you. if you, you know, get shipwrecked in the water and you crawl through the ocean, or you swim through the ocean. Oh, it's like you your, crawl up your the sand, aid station. It's your aid station. Um, they even gave them little booklets with first aid things and tips on how to survive and how to map. <laughs> so as your ship is going down, go grab your booklet and hold it in your mouth as you dog paddle. To the aid station. To the aid station. So eventually they discovered, you know, a lot of not, a, not a lot of people are making it to our little huts. Maybe we need something more. So in 1872, the United, which was late 1800s, the United States Life Saving Service was established on Cape Cod. They gave it 13 stations. Um, it was a federal government program, and it was created and helped to get set in motion by the Humane Society. Oh, interesting. Which did not start out saving animals. Um, cause I'm which, thinking like, I'm like, it's like an early coast guard, right? But kinda. not by the humane not society. By the humane society I want to do a podcast on the humane society at some point. We'll have to come up with, um, something for that. But so it's staffed with these crew and this was the interesting thing. So they dress them in the same, it's obviously this place because they had white uniforms, but they had to pass a physical exam and an endurance test and their, sh their sea ship skills. So the thing about this service was typically the higher you get in the service, the 
quote unquote easier your job is and you can just supervise the other people doing the work. I like that. Right. With this service, the higher you got in your job, the more physically demanding your job was. Oh, so I don't like that. So you might have a 60-year-old who's been on the job for 30 years. And they're doing more work. And they're than... doing more work than the 20-year-olds. <laughs> That's crazy. I know. So another industry in Cape Cod, other than ships, um, was salt making. And Isn't salt its own thing? Like it made itself, right? Well, yes, but you have to get it out of the water. Okay. So it's the Atlantic Ocean. It's super windy. Why not? So they made these like cistern things and they were three layers thick and they put the water in the top and it basically like the top layer filtered out all the animal and vegetable particulates and then the next layer would take the lime was precipitated out so basically what they're doing is they're just evaporating the water out yeah. and leaving the salt so in the second layer the lime would be precipitated out and then the third layer when that was all precipitated away you'd have the salt and um Captain John Sears opened the first salt works on Cape Cod. He used to, again, with the trucking down to the seashore, he would go down to the ocean with buckets, fill his buckets with water, go back up to his salt works, and pour them in his vats. That's and a lot. Somebody finally said, why don't you just put the vats down by the ocean? <laughs> so then they did that. <laughs> it was Henry David Thoreau. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> David Thoreau um and so yeah that's what they did so you had these like the ocean line had windmills and then these little that things on stilts it was just very and grist mills it was just very polluted with all kinds of stuff so this industry lasted for 60 plus years and then suddenly they discovered salt in New York and the salt industry in Cape Cod <laughs> that's hilarious they suddenly discovered salt in New York <laughs> <laughs> oh man there's salt here we have salt here, too, on this side of the coast. <laughs> well, in my um, class this year, we discovered that salt was one of the most valuable commodities in the Middle Ages. Uh-huh. In fact, if you're interested in West African history, there's a song on YouTube that will get stuck in your brain. It is called Salt and Golden Prophet. Mm -hmm. Look it up, and you will sing it for the rest of your life. <laughs> My kids at the end of the year would still say, my favorite part this year was salt and golden profit. But anyway, so Henry David Thoreau, in the early 1850s, he took a train to Sandwich and then he um, took a stagecoach to Chatham and then he walked to Provincetown. And that was because there, that was the only transportation to get there at that time. And then did he have an idea to <laughs> make transportation all the way? <laughs> yes, actually. I'm sorry, I don't later. like him in this story. <laughs> that comes later, but yes. Um, but he got down there. Captain and he, Obvious. <laughs> this is how he ruined Cape Cod again. He wrote a book about how awesome it was there. Oh. And so everybody wanted to come. So he wrote, um, a man may stand here and put all of America behind him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like him. But everybody wanted to be there after his book came out. And so it became a booming tourist area, which I will talk more about later. Um, but first, I'm going to talk about the ferry service. And the ferry service, it was called a... Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? 
Anyway, I'll get to it. So this fairy service, this man, which was a farmer, and he had a harvest of onions. And he needed to take his onions to Boston to sell them in the market. And for some reason, he couldn't. So he hired this fisherman to take his onions to Boston. And the fisherman's wife found out he was going to Boston. He said, hey. She said, hey, can I come? Because I want to do some shopping. Her neighbor found out that he was taking the onions to Boston and said, hey, I need to shop too. Before he knew it, he had over two dozen men and women who wanted to just hitch a ride to Boston to go do some shopping. Yeah, make them pay. So he did. And he you know found out well hey i can make more money hauling people than i can onions and so he um opened the oh called pack boat so he opened up a pack boat service and pretty soon all the little towns all around had pack boat services that just makes sense it does and those worked great until in the 1850s when the trains and the steamers and the railroads and eventually the canal started coming in and it put a stop to all the pack boats um, in 1848, the first train service from Boston began. It reached Sandwich by 1873, so it took, what, 30 years? It extended little by little all the way into Provincetown. The trains were better transportation, and that started bringing the visitors. And then as soon as you, you know, because you've got Thoreau's book, everybody come, it's a great place. Now you got the train, so now you're going to get all the little inns and the hotels. Yes. And all the things. Um, by 1890s, you could take a train all the way down to Provincetown, and at this point, they would have these huge resorts, and these great big resorts. They had bowling and horseback riding and any kind of recreation that you wanted to do, you could do there. And look at that page. It didn't print. It's blank. Um, and there was a resort by Dennis that had all of these different fancy amenities, and you could stay there in the 1890s for 15 to 25 dollars a week that is crazy yes but in those days that was a lot this also included your meals oh wow so this was like an all-inclusive all vacation yeah. yes but the average people couldn't afford to do that even at that no what we think is a low rate that was not a low rate cape cod was quickly becoming a place for the well to do because you could only get there by taking expensive transportation and then when you got there you had to stay in well it's driving places. distance to like three two out of three yeah Americans. <laughs> I want to know what he meant by that. Um, the Boston Sandwich Glass Company operated from the year 1825 to 1888. There was a Bostonian named Denny Jarvis, and he opened up the glass building, and he made it this huge complex. Um, they blew their first piece of glass on July 4th, 1825, and it's this gorgeous red, white, and blue commemorative thing. That's why we were using hand-blown glasses. There you go, because the glass works. Yes. Oh, my gosh, you're so smart. Um, it produced beautiful glassware. It was very meticulous about hiring skilled workers. He would go over to England, Ireland, and Scotland and hire away their best glass workers. And when you go to England, Ireland, and Scotland, mostly Ireland and Scotland, you bring back Catholics. Oh, I was going to say alcohol. That too. <laughs> but so he brought back the Catholics. He had, at one point, there were 500 people working in his glassworks. But he needed a Catholic church. He's bringing back all these Catholics. He's got to provide them a church. So they um, went to the mainland and they bought a building. They cut the building in half. They put it on a boat, shipped it over to Cape Cod and put it back up and put it together. And that was their church. Here's your church. Yes. About the same time that the glassworks was, about the same time that the national glassworkers were um, unionizing the 
local glassworks decided to unionize and they formed a union. But then when the National Glassworks called for a strike in 1888, the board of directors of the sandwich, Boston Sandwich Glass Company just said, never mind. <laughs> they shut the doors, put out the fires, done, over it devastated the community because you've got 500 people working there that all of a sudden aren't working aren't yeah. working yes so um that was sad there is a glassworks there now that is doing glass in the traditional way um, which is nice we just finished the girls and i just finished watching blown away on netflix i don't know what that is it's a glass blowing competition show oh which is it's actually really cool um in sagamore just down from the black from sandwich there was a blacksmith shop and this black blacksmith shop blossomed into another local cottage industry um, that became wagon builders and they built built the conestona conestoga and the prairie schooner wagons and this became the wagon of choice for people that are moving out west who would have thought they were made in cape cod they were made in cape cod so and the prairie schooner i don't know if you've seen a picture of it but it's a boat with wheels. Uh -huh. It's a boat with wheels and a big old canopy around it. Um, they were more sturdy than their competitors, and that was probably because, you know, shipbuilders. If it's going to float, it's going to be sturdy. Um, the owner, Mr. Keith, he eventually built a large apart apartment complex for the workers of his factory. Um, at the time of the documentary, they showed a picture of the buildings that were still standing. And the little old man says, they're over there next to the ball field. <laughs> and it just reminded me of my little town because people describe things as next to the ball field often. Or across the street from the pool. So he built a shopping area. He had an office complex for his wagon workers. He eventually built homes for his foremen. Um, Rent-free, they lived in these homes. And the block where the foreman's homes were was called Rainbow Row because all of the houses were painted different colors and it was arranged like a rainbow. So the narrator of the documentary made, made a point to say that maybe one of the reasons they did that was so that the men could find their way to their house <laughs> after payday and being out on the town. They're like, I live in the purple house. <laughs> yes. Um, in 1907, the Sagamore had developed into a full factory town. By the middle of the Great War, they had a contract to build, to make and ship 40,000, 40 or 8 rail cars and send them to France. So a 40 or 8 rail car is a rail car that can hold 40 men or 8 horses. Oh, got it. 40 so or were, 8. Right. They were building 40,000 of those and shipping them to France. Wow. Yes. However, sadly, that was in the end of World War, at the middle of World War One. Um, it was the biggest employer in town, and it was virtually put out of business by the steel box car when it came around. And at the time of the documentary, the largest employer on the entire peninsula is the hospital, and it has 1,200 employees. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. They need a gambling place. Yeah. <laughs> like Monaco. Um, so in the 1890s, President Grover Cleveland made his born residence, which is now gone, the Cape's first summer White House. He was followed in the 1960s by Kennedy. Kennedy's house was already there, though. Um, there was great, they made these big seaside resorts, summery families. It was visited by the fancy people. 
But once the car was invented, they had this man talking about how they did a study on this road in one year, then they did the same study 20 years later, and the automobile traveling down the road had increased something like 500%, just a massive amount of cars. Oh, yeah, I imagine. Um, so, but once the car was invented, people started to be able to make it there, and you had a larger variety of income levels, and the cabin colonies started popping up. You'd build a little cabin. So, hey, let's build a summer house on Cape Cod, and then to make money off that house, you rent it. Mm -hmm. And so people, you know, regular working people can now afford homes. But it was still kind of difficult to get around. So there's a story of this lifeguard who wanted to drive down to one of the towns. He was going to Provincetown. And so there was the driver of the car and then his passenger, and they had two boards. And they put the boards in front of the car, and they drove. And the passenger would bail out, move the boards to the front of the car, and they'd drive. Because there's no road. It's just yeah, sand. That's seems counterproductive yes and so then they finally get down there and they have to get back but there's no gas stations so they go to the druggist and they buy a little jar of gas a little they, like bottle of gas and they manage to get back um how though <laughs> i don't know there was probably some pushing involved i'd imagine um the idea of a canal through cape cod to kind of help these ships and whatnot became start it was being talked about as early as the 17th century, but it didn't happen until 1914. August Belmont from New York built the canal with his privately funded money. He it was cut from Sandwich to Buzzards Bay. The construction was not easy. They kept running into these great big glacial boulders that they hadn't anticipated or seen. It took five years to get the canal dug through, but it made the trip hours faster. Um, but it was really tiny, very narrow, and treacherous, and it kept getting filled up with sand. And so you still had shipwrecks. Even in the canal, ships were still having trouble. So in the 1930s, the United States government purchased it and renovated it as part of a public works project. And in the same public works project, they made two bridges. Um, one, two for, they made three bridges, two for highway and one for railroad across. So the Cape Cod Canal, which is 17.5 miles long, cuts across the base of the peninsula, separating it from the mainland, and it shortens the shipping distance between New York and Boston by 75 miles. Oh, that's a lot. Yes, that's a lot. Um, artisans were drawn to Provincetown in the early part of the 20th century. Um, 1899, Charles Hawthorne opened the Cape Cod School of Art and taught Impressionist art outdoors on the beaches. Um, it was the first of several art schools established over the next few years in Provincetown. Writers, John Reed, Eugene Neal, Henry David Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau. Started on um, Provincetown. And um, the Provincetown Players, which was the gem of the Cape Cod community and the community theater, and they played summer stock there. The Barnstaple Barn Comedy Club was founded in 1922, is still open. Oh, wow. Yeah, I kind of want to go. Um, and most notable areas of the amateurs groups were novelist Kurt Vonnegut. Vonnegut, yes, who acted in a production in the 1950s and 60s, and some of his early plays were produced by the group. Professional summer stock began with um, the Cape Cod Playhouse in Dennis in 1927, and in its early years featured Bette Davis, who was at first an usher, 
they had people like Henry Fonda, Ruth Gordon, Humphrey Bogart, and Gertrude Lawrence all play there. In 1926, Joseph Kennedy rented a summer cottage at 50 Marchant Avenue and at Hyannisport, and he loved it. Two years later, he purchased that same building, and he erected his 1904 compound and enlarged it, enlarged it, enlarged it to suit his growing family. And um, this house is where they raised a lot of their, their or where they raised their nine children during the summers, and... Um, got that whole Cape Cod sailing kind of vibe. The Kennedy clan. The Kennedy clan. One of them, um, in 1956, John bought a smaller home, John Kennedy, bought a smaller home at 11, 111 Irving Avenue, not far from his father's house. And Edward acquired the residence at 28 Marchant Avenue and the, and the others as well. And in 1959, he sold it to Robert and his wife, Ethel, in 1961. And Edward lived in the main house on the compound until his death, I believe in the 80s. I didn't write it down, but I think it was in the 80s. In 1928, the University Players Guild, today called the Fairmouth Playhouse, opened in Fairmouth, attracting the likes of James Carnegie, Orson Welles, Josh Logan, Tallulah Banquette, Jimmy Stewart, who while on vacation from Princeton, had his first bit part in the Fairmouth's first season. Oh, which funny. Which is kind of cool, yeah. Um, after World War II, they switched mostly to smaller single-family homes where the day workers could come out and vacation. Um, tourism has always been a part of Cape Cod. And agriculture had faded, except for the cranberry. The lovely cranberry. The lovely cranberry. Why we're here today. Yes. So Henry Hall was a sea captain before the War of 1812. And apparently that was what you did. You were a sea captain and then you had a cranberry bulk. I guess it makes sense. Yes. So one of his, he cut down some trees. And in cutting down these trees, the wind blew a bunch of sand onto this one section of his cranberries. And so he thought they were just ruined. So he didn't do anything with them that year. And then the same thing happened the next year, and he tried to sell them anyway, and they were plumper and better and tasted better than the rest of the cranberries. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So um, the actual industry where they're planting cranberries for the sake of making money with cranberries doesn't really start happening until 1847. Um, Beverly Thatcher from Thatcher Cranberries is the one who gave me that bit of information. Thanks, Beverly. Thanks, Beverly. Um, several seat talked about that. The community, so in my community, we've got almonds, and that's kind of what we do here. The women used to come out and they would postpone the schools, so the whole family's picking cranberries. The women used to pick them with their fingers, and then somebody invented a scoop with little fingers. Was it on Henry the David Thoreau? It probably. <laughs> And so they would run the scoop through and pick all the cranberries off with the little fingers on the scoop. And then pretty soon there was a harvesting machine and they would go through and the fingers would pick the cranberries off. Cranberries are grown both wet and dry and they are sold in different ways. So the um, dry cranberries are sold as the fresh fruit that you can buy and the wet ones are used for juice like we're drinking and sauce. Um, so they come through with this harvester thing that's almost like a boat and the cranberries are, they flood the field and the cranberries are floating, but they're still attached to the vine and this harvester thing plucks them off, but they just leave them float there. And then they like put this, um, big, it almost looks like the stuff that you put in the ground to hold your ground mulch back mm -hmm. and they gather the cranberries up and they pull them over. And then they've got these guys that are raking them onto this thing. It's a, 
an escalator looking thing. It's a conveyor belt. We see them around here yeah. constantly for the almonds. Mm -hmm. So they put them on that and it takes them up and plops them into the truck and off they go. Um, after World War II, Cape Cod decided, or someone decided that they needed to preserve some of Cape Cod because people were just coming in droves. So we need to have some land that's just like it was. So they, in the, um, in the 1950s, President Kennedy, who had summered in Hyamsport and liked Cape Cod, made a plan for a national park. And in 1961, he signed legislation to establish the Cape Cod National Seashore. Um, the Cape Cod National Seashore opened, and it is the last bit of land that you can see that is what Cape Cod looked like prior to all the development. Settlement. Yeah. But it's a national park that's a little different because some not all the land is owned by the federal government. Oh. Some of it is leased to the government from actual people um, that still own it. There are more than 100 farms on Cape Cod still. Fishing is still a big industry, but the most, obviously, is tourism, um, etc. There is an oceanic institute called Woods Hole that was established in 1930. There's an airport. Um, the National Guard base is there. Their favorable climate and, and scenic beauty and proximity to the eastern seaboard's major urban areas had made it a popular tourist destination. Um, and a new industry that just popped up in Cape Cod in 1980 in Hyamsport is Cape Cod potato chips. Cape Cod chips. Which I normally eat Lay's, but I bought Cape Cod potato chips for us today because I wanted us to try them. So Cape Cod potato chips can be found all over the country. And in five, in our country and in five other different countries, they now have 200 employees and they started with two. The story reminded me of Sierra Nevada Brewery Company. Yeah. Where they started with one dude and then they went on. So that's Cape Cod. It's one of the largest historic districts in the country. And um, the Old Kings Highway on Route 6A stretches 39 miles across the historic coast. And you can go check it out because it's pretty cool. And we're going to try Cape Cod chips. We'll pause while we try our chips because somebody is also having a meltdown. <laughs> Okay, so we had some delicious Cape Cod chips. They're really good. Yeah, they're very good. I want good. to eat more. Kettle-style potato chips. And while we're deciding which flavor to try next, I'm going to tell you about the Lady of the Dunes. Ooh, that sounds fun. Mm -hmm. It's not a long story because it's one of those things that as much as as much as they know is as much as been written about it. Oh, so, wow. So it's an, an unsolved uh -huh. crime? Yeah. Ooh. So... On July 26, 1974, 13-year-old Leslie Metcalf followed her friend's dog to the Race Point Dunes in Provincetown, Provincetown, Massachusetts. The dog was excited and seemed to be looking for something or tracking a scent. Uh -huh. So Metcalf, of course, was shocked when the dog led her to a decomposing body. So oh. she went back and told an adult. Good for her. Who obviously called the authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, the naked body was located 15 feet from the nearest access road. There were tire tracks nearby. There were also two sets of footprints that led to the body. The footprints disappeared into the sand. So the body was found to be a white female. She had been dead between 10 days to three weeks. Oh my goodness. She was lying face down on a green beach towel. 
and under her head were a folded pair of Wrangler jeans and a blue bandana. What year was this? 74. Okay. Her toenails were painted pink. No murder weapon or fingerprints were found at the scene. Um, She also had several teeth missing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Despite that, her dental work was described as, quote, New York style and worth thousands of dollars. Okay. So they found out, too, that her hands were missing and that there had been piles of pine needles placed in the sand to look like hands. Ew. Uh That's a weird tidbit. Yes. She had been nearly decapitated, which was possibly due to strangulation, and one side of her head had been crushed with what was believed to be some type of military entrenchment tool. Now, I read that, and I'm like, what's a military entrenchment tool? Is that a shovel, or... That sounds like a shovel. Sounds like a shovel to me, but I don't know. Could be one of those folding folding shovels. I don't know. Yeah. That's Um, exactly what it sounds like to me. Yeah. So, that injury, the... um, her blunt force trauma was determined to be the cause of her death. Okay. She had also been sexually assaulted. She was most likely between 25 and 35 years old. Poor thing. She had auburn or reddish hair that was in a ponytail, and the ponytail was held in place with a glittery elastic band. I think it was green, I want to say, but I don't have that hair. Huh. I didn't realize they had glittery elastic bands in the 70s. I know. So, um, she had an athletic build. She was approximately 5'6 and 145 pounds. There was no signs of a struggle and there were no drugs or alcohol in in her system. So, investigators think that she might have been murdered while she was sleeping because she was lying on one half of the towel. Okay. They also... How how does that add up? Murdered while she's sleeping because she's laying on one half of the towel? Like maybe there was somebody sharing the other half. Oh, okay. So this was the the murder location. She was not placed there. No, she was not placed here. That, I had that thought when you said that she'd been there for weeks. Yeah. Um, they also believe that her teeth and hands had been removed by the killer in order to hide her identity. Yeah. Which makes sense. How did they tell that she had extensive dental work done then? It wasn't all missing, just okay. some of it. So police searched through thousands and thousands of missing person reports, hoping to find a match, which in the 70s, that was really hard. Like, that was hand searching. Well, and also, this just occurred to me, the killer couldn't have known much about dental work or finding identities through that because he would have removed the teeth that had the work. And not just some of the teeth. Right. Like, they probably, yeah. Because, like, there are teeth in my head that have had work. Uh Uh-huh. That... Could be identified, and there's teeth that haven't had any Well, work. not only that, but now you can get, like, more discreet-looking dental work. Yes. In the 70s, it was, like... Obvious. Yes. So they also, besides looking through all these missing person reports, they also tried to locate a dentist who may have worked on her teeth. And they also investigated vehicles that had been driven through the area during the weeks prior to the body being found. So... All the vehicles driving onto that particular area of dunes Mm -hmm. were supposed to be checked in or registered. So they followed up on every single vehicle. Doesn't mean that person legally drove their car on the dunes. Right. So, but every vehicle that did register, because you're supposed to... You can rule them out. Yes. Potentially. Yes. The immediate area was also searched. They searched like over and over and over again, looking for more evidence, but nothing else was found. It's crazy. Um, so this one woman from Maryland, oh, they publicized it also. Like, they, they like, sent out, like, nationwide 
um, alerts or whatever that yeah. they had found this woman. So um, a woman from Maryland contacted the police because she thought that her sister was that woman and her sister had auburn hair uh-huh. and the two sisters had lost touch after one had moved to boston a few months before the murder the one that's missing unfortunately we don't know what ever happened to the sister and that it's possible it was followed up on but it's possible that it was not conclusive and we just don't know so they have no idea they potentially had a person that it could have been. They followed, no, they followed up on it and concluded something. They didn't just drop it, uh-huh. but they either concluded that it's absolutely not a match or there's, we just, we just don't know. It was one oh, of the two. Wow. So they can't conclude it was a match. Yeah. They never did that. But now with DNA, you know, there's some other. Right. But the, and the face was too badly decomposed to do a recognition of any kind. I think so. Yeah. Between the, um bludgeoning and being there for three weeks yeah so in 1987 a canadian woman went to the police to tell them that she had seen her father strangle a woman in 1974 near provincetown oh my god she was five years old at the time though oh i saw the boogeyman underneath the chair when i was five yeah it's probably a rat but yeah i was convinced for years that it was a boogeyman so the Royal Canadian Mounted Police passed the info along to the Massachusetts police. Unfortunately, by the time that this happened, the police tried to contact the woman, but she had moved away and they were not able to track her down again. Oh, wow. Um, at one point, the murdered woman was believed to be Rory Jean Kessinger, who was a 24-year-old drug dealer and bank robber. And mm. Rory had escaped from Plymouth County Correctional Facility in 1973. However, Did they wear Wranglers? Um, well, I mean, she had been escaped for like a year. Oh, okay. So, but they did do a DNA test in this instance and, um, her DNA did not match the, um, unidentified woman, the lady of the dunes. Well, you also wouldn't think that a person who was robbing banks would have expensive dental work done. That too. But I don't know what her early life was like. Right. Yeah. Um, two other women, Frances Ewalt of Montana and Vicki Lamberton of Massachusetts, were also ruled out by DNA. Um, probably the most interesting theory, not necessarily the most plausible, but an interesting one, is one that Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, who's also an author, had come up with. In 2015, Joe, who's familiar with the story of Lady of the Dunes, was mm-hmm. watching the movie Jaws when he noticed something interesting. There's an extra wearing a blue bandana and jeans that resembled the unidentified woman. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Jaws was filmed shortly before the murder took place in Martha's Vineyard, which is only a few hours away from Provincetown. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, even if she had been an extra, her identif- her identity, like locating her identity would be a long shot because they didn't really keep records no. of who all the extras were. Hey, you want to be at a movie? Here's 50 bucks. Yeah. Stand here. So Joe himself even admits that it's probably unlikely that it is the Lady of the Dunes, but... Um, but that'd be so cool. Yeah. And he has an FBI agent friend who commented, Otter ideas have cracked colder cases. Wow. So on Joe's blog... Well, because now with digital, you could pause it and zoom in. Yeah. But still, like, I don't think there's... that. All that stuff's long gone, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and the resolution of the camera that was used then may not be high enough to get any f- features, even if you could zoom in. Yeah, I mean, that's possible too. But Joe on his blog, I thought this was funny. When he um, when he posted his theory, He, this is his quote, 
put on your tinfoil hats and buckle up for a crazy <laughs> town, folks. Or for a ride to crazy town, folks. Yeah. But, so, aside from the woman remaining un- unidentified, her killer's also unidentified. Right. Which is the horrible part, mm-hmm. because he might be murdering other women. But there are some theories about that as well. So, the first one is Haddon Clark, who's a well-known murderer admitted to killing the Lady of the Dunes. Um, he said that he had buried evidence from the crime in his grandfather's garden and knew the woman's identity, but he wasn't going to tell anyone because the authorities had mistreated him. Poor him. Yeah. However, that's this whole thing's believed to be a false confession because Clark suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Um, he's currently imprisoned, and in 2000, he led police to his grandfather's former property, where they did discover a plastic bucket with more than 200 pieces of jewelry. Um, Clark said that they were trophies that he took from his victims. And one piece was identified as belonging to Laura Hodling, who Clark was convicted of killing in 1992. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, there is a forensic files on Laura Hodling. Mm. So that's, I knew that name. The other interesting theory is that infamous mob boss James Whitey Bulger is a suspect. So witnesses said that they recalled seeing him in the area with a similar looking woman around the time of the murder. He was a regular at the Crown and Anchor restaurant in Provincetown. And he was also known for trying to erase his victims' identities, like removing Mm -hmm. dental work. But wouldn't he be experienced enough to take out the teeth with the work? That was my question. Like, he would know better. Like, he's a professional. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we'll never know because Bulger was killed in... 2018 by other prison inmates um the unknown woman the lady of the dunes was buried at saint saint peter's cemetery in 1974 she's been exhumed twice um poor thing to like perform dna tests and to do other um to try and solve the case yeah and in 2010 new facial recognition software allowed experts from the national center for missing and exploited children and the smithsonian to create a composite of what the victim looked like. And that's the one, if you Google Lady of the Dunes, that will come up. It's like the first one that comes up. Most recently, investigators are examining a new method for the use of DNA evidence, similar to the one that was used to catch the Golden State Killer. So they're looking for, like, um, familial DNA Uh to hopefully generate some leads. And as of today, the case is still open. It's being worked on by the Provincetown Police Department. And they strongly encourage anyone with information to reach out and that they said that all possible leads will be investigated. Hmm. So this, I, I found a lot of, a lot, a lot of sources, but there's just not much to the story because it's so mysterious, but I primarily used medium.com, capecod.com, Cape Cod times and Wikipedia. Interesting. So I just looked it up in the picture of the extra and jazz popped up. Yes. Interesting. Huh. So that Cape is Cod's the lady. Cape Cod's mysterious place. The Lady of the Dunes. Our Cape Cod ships are being raided by child number two, who's yeah. been begging for them for three days. We're getting plundered. The store. There was no pirates that I found on pirate stories that I found. Well, we got Cape a pirate Cod. right here, as you can hear. Yeah, we do. Who's making an awful lot of noise, opening her, um, what did you see, all the mesquite, sweet mesquite barbecue. Anyway. Anyway, that's Cape Cod. I've never really, I know more about Cape Cod than I've ever known. Well, you should just drive over there. It's driving distance for almost all Americans. Out of the three of us in this room, two of us can drive there. (laughs) Let's hop in the car. 
Everyone. Well, we can because there's two bridges now. That's true. But yeah, so everybody drive on over to Cape Cod and get some chips. Get some chips. <laughs> and when you're there, see if you can become an expert. We're not. We're so not. But I am, after this Cape Cod drink, a tiny bit drunk. A little bit drunk. As always, you can contact us on Facebook at Crime and Time OTR. On Instagram, we are Crime and Time OTR. On Twitter, we're at Crime and Time OTR. And our email is crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. Email is where you, want to, where you will want to send us cocktail suggestions, things Topics. you want to learn about. Yeah. yeah. Or just say hi. Or just say hi. And we also have a new Patreon page Yay. if you want to buy us a drink. Buy us a drink. So that is patreon.com slash crime and time otr and we're going to be offering some perks for our patrons absolutely i'm excited see you there thank you for listening